listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I am joined by Dr. Charles McKinney Jr. to talk about Men Against Fire, the third episode of season five of Black Mirror, which first premiered in 2016. Charles W. McKinney Jr. is the Neville Freeman Bryan Chair of Africana Studies and an Associate Professor of History at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. He writes and thinks about civil rights, Black power era, African-American activism, and African-American politics. He's the author of Greater Freedom, The Evolution of the Civil Rights Struggle in Wilson, North Carolina, published in 2010, and the co-editor with Aram Gatsuzium of the excellent 2018 anthology entitled An Unseen Light, Black Struggles for Freedom in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. McKinney is a Morehouse man and a Duke PhD, and I have been given very direct instructions to note that he is not post-racial. Chuck and I are former colleagues, longtime friends, current neighbors, and frequent collaborators in generating all manner of, as the late Representative John Lewis would say, good trouble. I have a deep respect for his scholarship and pedagogy and abiding admiration for his moral backbone and sense of civic engagement and a genuine love of his rapier-like wit and intellect, which many of you listeners may already be familiar with from Charles and I's Grading War Letters to Home series from a few years ago. I literally held on to this Men Against Fire episode of Black Mirror for the last two months because I wanted to talk about it with one and only one person, and that was the one and only Charles McKinney. So I'm so glad that I finally nagged him into agreeing to this conversation today. So welcome, Chuck. I am so very, very happy to be here with you, Lee M. Johnson, PhD. It's awesome to be here. I'm very, very, very happy to be here with you. Yes, I was giddy and honored and humbled and uh, a little terrified um, when I got the, uh, <laughs> when I got your email asking me to um, come and talk about an episode of Black Mirror and be on your podcast. But for you, the world. So if anybody else had asked me to do this, I'd have been like, oh, hell no. But yeah, so so here we are. Yes, here we are. And maybe if I could right here at the beginning, I just want to say that we are recording this on the day after the attempted insurrection or coup on the United States Capitol. So I want to articulate that context for this conversation, because much of what we're going to be talking about has to do with metaphoric constructions of our political world. And I imagine that we might be looking at this episode differently today than we would have even just a couple of days ago. But Chuck, as you know, at the beginning of every episode, I ask my guests to summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to talk about. So could you go ahead and summarize for us Men Against Fire? Sure. Happy to, Lee. So our main character, our protagonist, is uh, a man by the name of Kaninga, but he goes by Stripe by his clothing. It like, looks like he's in the army. He's part of an elite military team. And this team is tasked with, among other things, ridding the world of what is commonly known as roaches in in the episode. So Stripe and his platoon get deployed uh, a number of times to eliminate these roaches. 
We are led to believe that these roaches are humanoids that have been horribly perverted by some unknown way. We're not quite sure. We don't ever quite get the origin story of these quote unquote roaches. But the roaches, they're out in the hillsides and they're attacking villages and towns and taking food stores and things of this nature. So Stripe and his crew are deployed one time with a successful raid on some roaches. The roaches are terminated. The roaches are killed. But before Stripe is able to kill one of the final roaches, one of the roaches wields a, a light, a green light. Stripe is in military gear. And so all of his vision, his sight, all of these things are being, being mitigated by military technology. So apparently what this thing does is it disrupts the imaging that Stripe receives from home base. And so this is a small occurrence with Stripe in this first excursion. He goes back to the military base. He complains of headaches. He, he gets sent to the doctor's office. Doctor tells him he's fine. Sent to the psychiatrist. Psychiatrist tells him he's fine. I mean, he just talks a little bit about the glitches that he'd been seeing in the wake of this light. The next time Stripe goes out, his equipment fails, and he realizes that the roaches, these, these zombie alien-like monsters that they have been tasked with exterminating, are actually other human beings. And so, cue existentialist crisis, right? Stripe is like, oh my God, what we're doing here is actually killing other humans, we're killing other people. So he goes back and he actually winds up confronting one of his platoon mates in the second confrontation, tries to save some of the, the people, formerly roaches, newfound humans. He is captured and taken, Stripe is captured, taken back to the, taken back to the base. And a psychologist basically just gives him the uh, 411, says, look, look, you know what? Yeah, we know they're humans, but they are subhumans. They have higher rates of venereal disease. They're not as smart as we are. He gives the eugenics speech about why these people should be regarded as roaches, should be regarded as subhumans, and um, by extension should be exterminated, and then gives Stripe a choice. You can either step back into basically the matrix Right. You know, and we will erase this conversation. We will erase all of the bad stuff. And also, by the way, this is also us suppressing your feelings when it comes to the killing and murder. People are much more inclined to kill roaches than they are humans. So Stripe is left faced with a choice. And as the episode ends up, it seems as if Stripe has decided to head back to the military, although it's a little ambiguous as in, in terms of Stripe's choice. But the choice is really stark. Again, you know, have your memory erased and come back into the honeycomb and continue to kill humans disguised as quote unquote roaches or or go to prison, basically. Right. So it would seem that he has chosen to stay in the military because he ain't in jail. <laughs> right. Right. And so the episode ends with him staring wistfully at a house that uh, recurs in a number of his dreams. And so I'll leave it at that. Yeah, maybe one thing that I would just add, and you implied this already, even in your summary there, is that in this episode, all of the members of the military are implanted with a kind of brain machine interface, which they call the mass device. Right. And right. the mass device is what enables or... I mean, enables is a difficult word to use here, but causes the military personnel to see these targets as roaches. And in the actual episode, they look like zombie right. monsters right. Um, and not see them as other human beings. It right. also, by the way, suppresses other sensations of theirs. So right. That's it right. suppresses That's right. their ability to smell and hear right. That's and, right. yeah. and some other sensations. 
And as a reward for killing these roaches, they are rewarded with hypersexualized erotic dreams, presumably so that they associate a kind of pleasure reward with the killing of roaches. Right. So, so yeah, so exactly as you say, at the end of the episode, once Stripe has discovered that this is a hallucination, really, or at least a modulation of his senses that has caused him to see these other human beings as monsters. He says, I don't want any part of it. But because the mass device is a brain machine interface, they are capable of torturing him by replaying the memories of what he did when he killed the roaches. And you know, would have so been that, part of his, which would have been part of his prison sentence as, as it, well. Had he exactly, exactly. And so he's given this impossible choice at the end which is, look, you go full in on this or we're going to basically torture you with this human rights violation that you've committed for the rest of your life. And in the replay of it, you're going to feel and see and smell and hear all of the horrors of what you've done, which you were not able to feel and see and smell and hear when you actually did them. So I am just going to start off with the kind of obvious question. And you even said this in your summary, which is that the psychologist that talks to Stripe is using straightforwardly genocidal eugenicist language. You know, he's like, this is a a subspecies that needs to be wiped out. And it, it recalls very clearly, in this case, the Rwandan genocide in which Hutus in their broadcasts referred to the Tutsi minority as roaches in order to, I mean, some people argue in order to avoid charges of hate speech, While they were, you know, inciting a genocide. Right. But that this idea of dehumanizing and reducing the enemy to insects or monsters is part of the basic logic of eugenicist genocides. Right. And we've seen this in so many instances, right, you know, across space and time. So, you know, so that makes me think about the concentric areas between technology and domination, right, technology and subordination. So why do we know that the Negro and that the Irishman are inferior species in the United States in the 1880s and the 1890s? Well, these new bodies of knowledge right? Well, that's what the criminologists are telling us. That's what the sociologists are telling us. That's what the anthropologists are telling us because of their objective studies in the drunkenness of the Negro and the criminal proclivities of the Irish, using the tools of science, using modern technology, using the latest and greatest intellectual innovations, they have objectively included that these two groups of people are are not equal to Teutonic Europeans. So the the concentric area between technology and and, and subordination, technology and, and race, and in particular, this is a long, miserable history. So this episode of Black Mirror, in many ways, it's a throwback, but it's also, for me, it's simultaneously throwback, but also culmination, right? It's, it's throwback to again, those concentric areas, right? And we can look at very particular moments in time where those concentric areas overlap, you know, birth control, hey, hot new technology, take this pill. Well, who do we want to take this pill, right? You know, uh, hey, thank you, Miss Sanger, right? She's like, hey, you know, this technology can be used to make sure that particular groups of people don't replicate as quickly as other groups of people. There's always this tension 
in contemporary society between the idea of technology being sort of this neutral entity and technology being a non-neutral entity in how we think about technology and how we think about the uses of technology that when we're not careful, we can obscure the nefarious means of technology, which also makes me think about what you said to start us off in terms of the insurrection of two days ago, right? Alicia Garza called them vanilla ISIS, and that's just the best thing ever. And so, you know, there's 50% of the country, or at least 70 million people are accessing technology to reaffirm what they think they already know with regard to the election. There's 70 million people out here who believe that 18,000 illegal immigrants voted in the state of Pennsylvania that 50,000 people under the age of 18 voted in Georgia, that a a bunch of left-handed, red-headed aliens came down and and tipped the scales in Arizona or whatever, right? And also that apparently, no matter what you were when you were alive, once you're dead, you only vote Democrat. That's right. Everybody's (laughs) a Democrat when they're dead. I do actually want to ask you this question, which is, what do you think is the difference between the kind of technologically mediated forming of our perceptions of the world that we see in Men Against Fire, which involve literally interfering with our sensory perceptions of the world, like literally how we see and smell and hear objects external to us and people external to us. What's the difference between that kind of, you know, what still today is super advanced technology and the technologies that we've had for hundreds of years, you know, since print media that have showed us pictures over and over and over again of African-Americans who look like monkeys or now in social media, people being sort of fed constantly in QAnon conspiratorial image of the world in which a certain type of people is out there that are, I don't know, like sex trafficking, pedophilic, deep state monsters, right? right? Right. But but all of our manners of re-imaging other human beings as monsters have always, always been technologically mediated. Right. So, I mean, this is not some super futuristic. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering, like, what you think the real difference between Stripe's experience of seeing a world in which there is a, you know, clear and present danger that must be eliminated for the survival of humanity and whatever the fuck these people (laughs) who stormed the Capitol building yesterday saw in the world. I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, and this is why I I think of the episode in terms of a a dystopian throwback. This is what Black Mirror does, right? This is some version of the future, very dystopian, very, very problematic. But I was watching the episode and I was like, yeah, but is it really? (laughs) I mean, what's, 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 I was like, what's the, I was like, oh my God, in the future, people will use technology to demonize other people. Who saw that coming? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Gasp. (laughs) This is actually what Charlie Booker says about the series is that it's not meant to be particularly utopic or dystopic. He says it's meant to show us how we're living right now and how we might be living in 15 minutes if we're clumsy. 
Right. I, I think that's a really good corrective. And I, I, I kind of wish that every episode of Black Mirror would start with that, would start yeah. with that little banner. Right. You yeah. know, this is not about the future. This is about right now. Yeah. <laughs> right? What, I, at the conclusion of this episode, please look around <laughs> and notice. Right. right. And not be shocked at this vision <laughs> of the quote unquote future. History is replete with people who believe in their bones that another group of people are subhuman, right? Yeah. I mean, and we don't have to travel, we don't have to leave the country to find examples of this, right? I think about people in, white people in rural America, rural, there's no way to say rural without sounding rural. <laughs> white, white people in rural America who have zero or next to zero actual interactions with people of another race or another experience or ideology or class or whatever, and who only get an account of the world through the radio, through the television, or through social media. Yeah, right. You know, like, yeah. how are they any different than these soldiers right. in this? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. So when you're removed from a particular group of people and all the information that's being fed to you tells you very specific things about this group of people, right? Oh, here they come, lock your doors. Here they come, protect your kids. But the other thing too, right, is the contingent of white folks who aren't living in the rural South. The contingent of white folks, say, for instance, in the first half of the 20th century, who lived in close proximity with Black people. I'll never forget in my first book, Civil Rights Movement in Eastern North Carolina, interviewing a large swath of white people from Wilson who simultaneously have black people cooking their food, mowing their lawns, you know, their maids' kids are growing up with their kids, right? Who have a contingent of black people in their lives and yet and still maintain these attitudes of this hypothetical rural person who's never actually seen a black person. The levels of terror could be just as high, right? Yeah, you don't have to go back to the civil rights era. I mean, you and I exist in 21st century academia. And how many hiring committees have you sat on, right? Oh, dear where, God. right. Where, yeah. where members of your hiring committee have an idea of Black people that has yeah. no connection to reality whatsoever. Yeah, none, 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 none whatsoever, right? None whatsoever. And you're absolutely right. We don't have to go back to the 1930s. We can go back to, you know, Wednesday. <laughs> when we sit back and, and look in the mirror that Black Mirror holds up to us, this is the question that we have to ask. Okay, what's so freakishly, radically, demonstrably different about this version of reality and the reality in which I live like right now. Uh, and again, thinking about technology, that very double-edged phenomenon, right? That's that same technology. The technology that's demonizing particular groups of people is also valorizing your group, right? Mm -hmm. Is also, yeah. you know, is also telling you that, hey, you know what? I'm a white guy. I'm from a proud European intellectual cultural tradition that stretches back to the to the ancient Egyptians who were who were also, as we all know, clearly part of Northern Europe, right? <laughs> You know, so like Jesus. You know, yes, that's right. You know, from Jesus, Quetzalcoatl, <laughs> you know, I show my students this book written by a really, really smart man in the 1930s who literally says that these famous figures from outside of Europe, they probably had Caucasian blood. That's probably what made them so very unique and so very smart. Quetzalcoatl among them, right? The last like emperor of China, you know, clearly, you know, clearly his dad was named Dennis, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so yeah, it's the tension between dystopian throwback and, and current reality. 
But here's one difference between our current reality and the episode. I say that, but you may want to argue that this difference doesn't exist. But in the episode, this brain machine interface that is designed to cement these prejudices in the minds of the soldiers, that cementing is reinforced by eroticizing the violence against these monsters or these perceived monsters right? and giving people these hyper-erotic dreams in order to both relax them from the trauma of the violence that they've done and also to reinforce the rightness of the violence that they have done. So I'm actually really curious to hear what you think about the incorporation of that kind of element of the story. Why does this hatred and violence have to be eroticized or at least reinforced with a kind of pleasure feedback? That's a great question. It makes me think about the ways in which we try to segment out death and and punishment. Over the holiday, I was in the bookstore, and as one tends to do, I I picked up a copy of Discipline and Punish, (laughs) you know, because nothing says Christmas like Discipline and Punish. (laughs) Yeah, nothing says Christmas like Discipline and Punish, right? And his ideas about the ways in which, as we've become more modern, we've separated out the punishment. We've sequestered it away. We used to have public firing squads. Well, you don't do the firing squads anymore. The public part is the trial. And so what happens to you if you're convicted of something, what happens to you after that is no longer for public consumption. We take you away to a prison or a jail. We take you away someplace where we will execute you or or whatever, right? So your question makes me think about the segmentation, the separation, the separating out of the action of killing these humans, how we've sequestered that and separated that out. And so since it is such a separate entity, it's such a separate phenomenon, You know, the sex dreams are like, it's like Soma, right? (laughs) You know, we have to give the brain, we have to give the mind something. Because my my sense of it is, if we didn't do that, if we just let people come home and sleep, right, then that would be like a glitch in the matrix. This is where reality could slip in. If we just let them come and leave their brains to their own devices, right? So the separating out of the violence, of the killing, and supplementing their existence, basically paying them for their performance with the sex dreams. I mean, it's just, that's a really interesting, you know, that's a really interesting dynamic. But then the other thing that I'm thinking about is A friend of mine, brilliant scholar, Kelly Carter Jackson, we were doing a panel discussion and she mentioned this other scholar. This other scholar was like, you know, one of the default modes we have about racial violence is racial violence is a function of hatred. And her friend was like, no, I don't think it's a function of hatred. I think it's a function of pleasure. You know, people just basically get off on this shit. And you can see that we've got lots of evidence for this. Right. So this raises other sets of questions for me related to your question about that separation, that segregation, that sequestering of the violence and then the reward with the pleasure. So that's one reading of what we should do with the violence. Right. Is that it should be sequestered and muted. You shouldn't have to smell it, see it, taste it actually remember it. So that's one reading of people's relationship to violence. But another reading, right, is you totally want to see it. You totally want to experience it. I want to be at the lynching. I want to see this black body burned alive. I want to go to this public ritual where somebody is going to be murdered. So that's another that's another dynamic. Does any of this making sense in terms of it what is, I'm trying it to- It is. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think it is less so the case now that people want to see the lynching 
And I mean, I know you've done a lot of work on lynchings and there are these, actually, I learned this from you, that there were these postcards that white people send each other in the Jim Crow era that were postcards of lynching. It was like, hey, you know, Martha and I were at the lynching today. And, That's right. You know, uh, but here's the thing that I think today is slightly different about that. So I'm reminded of 2004-ish when legitimately this country was having an argument about whether or not torture is moral. This is as the Abu Ghraib photos were coming out. And I think that there were a lot of people who found that sort of pleasure reinforcement in seeing that torture was done and that torture was done in their names. But the pleasure part of it was not having to experience all the smells and sounds and sights of the actual torture, but being able to transfer that pleasure part of it to justice is being done. And so I just want a little bit of evidence of the act that was done. And then I want all the grossness of it, the nastiness of it, the horror of it flooded in my cognitive experience with the pleasure of justice being done. And I do think that that is actually consonant with what we see in this episode, which is that we want to suppress the actual experiences of the soldiers enacting of this genocide so that they don't remember the smells and the screams and the horror of it. But whatever they did gets cast in this amber hue of pleasure so that the normal psychological mechanisms of pleasure reinforcement work. And that, I I worry, is a little bit of the same of what we see in the endless repetition of the executions of Black people videos that we see on social media all the time. There is obviously a kind of rush that people get in watching it, but I do think that people also think, but my seeing this is helping justice. And so I'm not actually experiencing any pleasure in seeing this man choked out or this man shot in the back or, you know, whatever. But I don't know. I, I mean, well, I, I don't know. What do you- <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. First off, you should get into philosophy. I, that's, you should think about, you should totally think about that. You should totally think about that. Here's where you mix in notions of justice and notions of race and, and, and difference. I do think that fundamentally human beings have kind of weirdly built into our social psychology a pleasure mechanism that is activated when we experience something that we view as just. However deformed or distorted our notions of justice are, which is why I think that there are some people who are going to be there at the lynching and experience pleasure because they think it is just you know, yeah, just, right. No, yeah, and that's, like, and that's yeah. yes, that's and that's where I'm and that's where I'm going. There's a whole bunch of people out here where if your friend Billy was jogging down the street and three people stopped him and shot him to death, you wouldn't want that to happen to Billy, right? But a suspicious black guy who's jogging down the street in the state of Georgia and who does and who chooses not to respond to the commands of these random ass white people to stop and be questioned or be detained or whatever who chooses his own freedom and then gets murdered for choosing his freedom, right? Well, then, you know, it's not Billy anymore, right? It's a black guy, 
right? You know, if, as my friend Kelly Carter says, white people commit crimes, black people are criminals, mm-hmm. right? So, so this guy's a criminal. He didn't do anything, right? He does, you know, he did. He was not in the, you know, he was not in the process of committing a crime or anything. But, but hey, you know what? All he had to do was stop and listen to these white men. Right. Yeah. All he had to do was stop and give an account of himself. And since just he co- did not do that, just comply. Just all he comply. had to do was comply to these random ass non-police people. Right. All he had to do was comply. He didn't comply. He brought that on himself. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is unfortunate. But you know what? This is on some level. This is kind of how this is supposed to work. When white people tell black people to stop, they're supposed to stop. And when they don't, then and if they get murdered, well, then, you know, on some level, then this was a just act. So that's the other layer here. That's the other factor here. You know, Stripe and his crew, they're killing roaches. Yeah. Right. That's the crux of this. Right. They're not killing other people. They're killing these subhuman, these mutants, these zombie-like creatures that are clearly menaces to society. That's the tipping point when it comes to that sense of pleasure. I would never want to see particular sorts of things happen to people that I know and love and who look like me. But if they don't look like me and if I don't love them, then that pleasure principle, when it's wrapped up with that sense of justice, oh, well, then he had it coming. And I'm glad that it happened to him. I worry a little bit that saying, well, you know, if you just keep reinforcing people's pathological, violent desires with pleasure, then that's just how it works. They're just going to see Black people as enemies, or they're just going to see the other, at fill in bracket quotes, whatever the other is, as roaches and So then what we need to talk about is just what are the mechanisms that put this in place? And, you know, I'm all for critiquing structural institutions and structural architectures that allow people to be horrible people. But I also worry that it it is a little bit of a get out of jail free card. One of the things that, you know, to take it back to the episode is I was like, okay, the the villagers don't have on any, you know, they they don't have mace. Right. So, you know, so what is such a good point? So how is such a good point? So how exactly is it? How exactly does it work? Yeah. What's their beef? Yeah. Right. That's what's their beef. And how do you become a roach in this society? Because clearly the villagers are, you know, just average normal humans. The quote unquote roaches are average normal humans, but they see them as particular. So how how does that so how does that work? Right. There's no reason to believe in the episode that the villagers actually physically see the roaches as roaches. Right. Like we know why the soldiers see them as roaches. But I'm so glad you brought this up because this is one thing that is the most disturbing about the episode is that, you know, it's important for listeners to know that. This takes place in, well, we don't know where it takes place. They're all speaking Danish. So presumably it takes place in, oh shit, I'm going to fuck this up. Denmark? Where do they speak Danish? Finland? Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> Brooklyn? <laughs> Doesn't take place in America. Right. But an American army has been sent in to manage this crisis. And presumably because the American army already had the same experience in America. Now, we have no reason to believe that the whole world has somehow been implanted with this mass device that the soldiers are implanted with. 
So we have to assume that there is legitimately something genocidal, something racial. There's some kind of ethnic cleansing going on. And that the soldiers are being implanted with these mass devices to make the genocidal processes more efficient and quick. The title Men Against Fire is actually taken from a book by World War II Army commander, I don't remember his name, who wrote this book called Men Against Fire, in which he basically explained that most soldiers will not actually shoot their enemies. Shoot their they weapons. Shoot, yeah, yeah, they shoot only... of their enemies. And so if you want to effectively and efficiently eradicate an enemy, you need to alter the soldiers first. I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up because the villagers are not implanted with these devices. They're just racist or whatever. They're just just racist, right? And, you know, and, you know, and they're all, I mean, and I was like, okay, they're all white people. The roaches (laughs) were white people. And the villagers are white people. And I was like, so how does that, how does that work? I mean, what, what, you know, the villagers. I think that this episode is really meant to recall both the conflict in the former Yugoslavia and also the conflict in Rwanda. Right. So although it would be really low hanging fruit to make this a racial conflict, it's made more complicated by the fact that it's ethnic. Yeah. 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 And so back to your earlier question, I think, you know, the episode only sort of touches on what we could call this this larger architecture of domination. This is like a corner of it. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff that has to have happened Mm -hmm. on multiple levels for us to Mm -hmm. arrive at the point where, you know, the federal government of the United States and the military in particular, the military industrial complex says, okay, the most effective way to fight this war is with this type of technology, right? Yeah. You know, there's a whole bunch of scaffolding that has to have taken place. And that scaffolding is way more than just technological advancement. We're talking political and economic and cultural and social. The society has moved to a point where mass technology is defensible, right? Is feasible, is not just politically viable, but is, is seen as the necessary next step in order to fight this sort of indeterminate war, skirmish, whatever action that these forces are clearly engaged in. That's a really important point for us to remember that the technological aspect here is just a snippet. A whole bunch of other shit had to happen in order for us to get to this particular point. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. Let me ask you this question. The marker that marks the difference between persons and monsters or roaches or subhumans, if we said that that marker is not racial or ethnic or class-based, but is something else, like literally diseased, would you have a different view of what's going on in this episode? I mean, we're recording this in January of 2020. We're literally living in the middle of a pandemic and there will be more pandemics in the future and they may not, probably will not be as easily managed as this one. And I say that fully recognizing that this one has not been managed well at all. 
But if in the future there was something like a super virus and this were the only way to eradicate it, to save the species, would you have a different analysis of the episode than you do when we put it in sociopolitical or economic terms? Yeah, I don't think so. Right. I think so you don't feel you don't feel any allegiance to saving the species at any cost. No. Humanity as a species. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, there's a cost associated with this. And when you think about it and you think through that, then, you know, there would be a cost associated with that. But we're paying that cost right now when we say, look, restaurants can only have 50 percent capacity. People have to wear a mask. I mean, there are costs to all of those decisions. People are going to lose their jobs. People are going to be evicted. People are going to go bankrupt. People are going to go hungry. And all of those we say but this is in the interest of humanity, of saving all of us. We have to put these measures in place, which are going to have disproportionate benefits and rewards. But this is a global pandemic. It's a biological enemy. And we're going to lose some and we're going to save some. And the aim is to save as many as possible. Like, how is that different? You know, I think when we arrive at the spot where we start to say, okay, which groups of people are not just negligible, which groups of people are eligible for extinction, are eligible for extermination? That's a function of a, a, a dramatic and not historically unprecedented lack of imagination with regard to other options that we could possibly and conceivably come up with. The idea that, you know, okay, well, hey, we're just going to have to thin the herd here, right? You know, I, I think about the logic of capitalism, which is, hey, you know what? In order to maximize profits, there's winners and losers. And sometimes you're a winner and sometimes you're a loser. And that's the way this works. So what does it look like to say, what systems and structures do we have to tear down and build up again so that we can arrive at some different conclusions about how to save the planet. You know, so many of those formulations are constrained by countries, by governments, by institutions, by corporations that say, hey, you know what, we got to fix this problem, but we have to fix this problem in a way that the $800 billion laying in my bank account remains untouched. <laughs> right. You I know. mean, I agree with you. I think that you're precisely correct to say that we are culling the herd prejudicially right now with regard to the three greatest species threats that we're facing, which are COVID-19, nature, and AI, which could legitimately end our species. We are choosing who's expendable. And we're choosing those using all of the historically and deeply embedded racial and class prejudices that have kept nation states afloat so far and multinational corporations afloat so far. But I'm going to keep pushing on this question because I feel like I feel like I want you to squirm a little bit. If we applied a different prejudicial filter and we said, look, when there's a threat to the species, some culling has to be done. And instead of using all of those historical culling prejudices that we have been using, which have been race-based or class-based or gender or sex-based, et cetera, instead what we said is, look, you know who's going to get sacrificed? The people who are not for the preservation of the species. So you know what? You believe the pandemic is a hoax? 
here is the camp that you can go to. And I, and believe me, I am well aware of the very dangerous territory that I'm treading here, but you don't want to wear a mask. Here's the camp that you can go to. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. You, you know, you don't, you are not interested in preserving the species. You are interested in only in endangering the species. You don't get a vaccine, but the rest of us have got to save the species. I, you know I, that, I mean, you know, when you say it like that, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you should have led with that. You buried the lead, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, clearly that's a very compelling argument to me. And you can imagine that we have Army and Marine and National Guard who are going to have to find people and be like, you know what? You don't get to stay in your home anymore. You don't get to participate in society anymore. You got to come with me. Right. And maybe the only way to get them to do that is to dull their senses, right? And be like, look, this is for the sake of the species, right? You know, but you this. know, right. And you know, I mean, thinking about this question. I just want most- to say for the listeners that I am not a eugenicist. Like, this yes, is, that's a good disclaimer. This is a thought experiment. <laughs> right. Like- I, I'd say, yeah, I'm glad you've reminded your dear listeners that this is, in fact, a thought experiment. Because yes. the most compelling answer that I have heard to this question, the question that you just posed in terms of how we would do this, is the answer posed by Thanos, right? Mm. Thanos is like, you know what? There's a drain on resources. There's a drain on the environment, right? AI has run amok. We've got all of these problems in society. However many billion people are living on the planet, you all are chewing through the resources. The species as we know it's going to be dead in a few thousand years. Snap, half of you are gone. Yeah. And it's a random half. I didn't go out and pick the poor people. I didn't go out and pick the black people. I didn't go out and pick the trans people, right? It's boom, snap. 50% 50% is gone. We got to reboot and start over. Your number just got drawn. Your number just got, it's the ultimate draft. <laughs> and I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, Chuck McKinney, if the, if, if the Zoomers decided that right now, because God knows they are not going to have a planet to live with, and they are aware of the future that is not theirs. And if they just said in 10 years and sit with this for a second, in 10 years when they're Congress people, if they were just like, yeah, let's all run for the Senate and, you know, this is it. We're going to have a draft. We cannot all live here anymore. We can't all live here anymore. And I mean, this is Logan's run. You get to live your best life up to the age of 30. <laughs> and, yeah, then, I mean, and it's like, congratulations, you just turned 30. Come, you're going to go to this really awesome place for your birthday and never be seen again or whatever, yeah. because we don't have any more room for you. Right. You know, I mean, I am a tech optimist and that's probably lowballing how optimistic I am about, about tech. But I do think that one of the things that will be the end of our species is that we continue to think about ourselves as individuals not as a system. And one of the great advantages of getting out of the way of AI and machine learning and advanced intelligence is that maybe we can find some solutions that require us not to think about ourselves as individuals anymore. Yeah, right. There's a whole lot there, sister, right? You know, indigenous knowledge and indigenous ways of thinking, which move us from I have rights to I have obligations, Exactly. Right. So we have answers to these questions. The problem is people don't like the answers. 
It does, Maybe those it are does, people that need to get Thanos snapped. <laughs> yeah, we, right. people don't like the answers because those answers don't have high yields in their retirement portfolio. Yeah, right. Their answers that answer might hurt their IRA accounts. <laughs> right. Oh, big sad. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I can't play golf three times a week. This is an outrage. listening to Black Mirror Reflections, which is mostly a labor of love and is, at present, ad-free. If you like what you hear, and if you're hearing what you like, consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. That's patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. And now back to our conversation. Let me ask you a question about the technology, which may shift this conversation in a totally different direction, but I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this. So in the episode, not only is it the case that the soldiers perceive the roaches as roaches because of a brain machine interface that has been implanted in them, it's called a mass device, but it's also the case that the roaches have developed a kind of antidote device that looks a lot like the men in black flash device, right, memory right, flash, right? Yeah. That if they flash it into the eyes of the soldiers, it works like a virus in the soldier's mass device and basically sort of deprograms it and allows the soldiers then to immediately see the roaches as human beings again. This, to me, is a fascinating prospect because I do think that people miss this about this episode a lot, is that not only is the technology the problem, but it's also the solution. Right. In my philosophy and technology class, we read this essay by Thomas Douglas about what he calls moral enhancement. Like, what if we could use technology to morally enhance someone? And there are a lot of different ways to think about it. Like, what if I could give you know everyone an anti-racism pill? Or if I, what if I could implant a device in everyone that was like an anti-racism device? And I think most people in general would be like, yeah, let's do it, right? This is a huge problem. And most people, I think, are willing to kind of overlook violating individuals' freedom and autonomy and implanting technological devices in them if the end result is that the world is a better place. Right. However, you know, one of the problems with this kind of thinking of technology as a solution for moods or prejudices or disposition for a psychological phenomenon that are as complicated as racism is that at least in a modern liberal democracy, we would say you can't do this without the consent of the person who's going to get the device, right? But like what racist would consent to, you know, taking a non-racist pill? <laughs> ah, there we go. You know, so, so the problem is the only people that would consent to this device are the people who've already realized or it's already occurred to them that they're is an error in their thinking and the people with real error in their thinking would never consent to this kind of a device right so so okay so let me just ask you the straightforward question first would you be in favor of something like an anti-racist technology oh my god a man in black flash button that i could flash in people's faces and make them immediately not only not racist but anti-racist 
Do you think, you know what? Screw people's liberty. I will tread on you. Let's flash them. <laughs> flash away. Flash, flash away. Flash, 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 flash. Man, that's rough. I mean, you know, I'm I'm inclined just to- This I'm, is being I'm, recorded. What yes, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, dear God. Oh, hey, I have to let my dog out. <laughs> Um, no, but this is a serious question. I really no, again, you know, my inclination off the jump is just, just is to say no because of the whole individual autonomy, freedom of choice, freedom of will thing. And then I mean, OK, are you saying no, because we have to respect people's autonomy. And if they use this kind of device, then tomorrow they might use some other kind of device that, you know, I mean, is it that kind of a thought process? So that's part of my problem. The other part of my problem is the invariable reality of the bug in the code, the glitch in the serum or the virus or whatever we would be injecting in it, right? You know, what group of anti-racists is creating this, this anti-racist vaccine? What's their version of anti-racism? What are their notions of anti-racism? So that's my other hesitancy, right, is how is it being defined Who's defining it? And then I start to think about all of the other sorts of ways that this thing potentially impacts people's actions. So what does it mean if we've all taken an anti-racist serum, an anti-racist vaccine, then cultural groups disband, right? Then people will say, well, why would we ever want a, a historically black college? That seems extremely racist to have organizations in American society where people go to those organizations based on their racial background, based on their racial interest. So, hey, well, why would we have that? So that's the question. If this isn't something that you get to turn on and off, then what sorts of judgments are people making about the different types of ways that race thinking, as Paul Taylor would call it, that race thinking is playing out in American life? Because the easy thing is if we all get the vaccine, then, you know, the Klan will disband. You know, if we all get the vaccine, then the Proud Boys go home, which is awesome, which is great. You know, if we all get the vaccine, Jason on my block wouldn't have been such an asshole, right? I mean, that's all well and good and true. But after we all get the vaccine, then why doesn't Congress zero out the budget for black colleges? You know, why don't Fortune 500 companies stop sending money to the United Negro College Fund? Right. Yeah. I'm going to pat myself on the back because I teed that one up for you, but you totally just knocked it out of the park, which is, <laughs> which, which is exactly right. Of course, if we did have such a technology or even a pharmaceutical technology, if we all got the anti-racist vaccine, mandatory nationwide, you know, global anti-racist vaccine, of course, yes, the Klan would disband. The Proud Boys would disband. But it would do exactly nothing about the 200, 300, 500 year deeply entrenched social and political and economic problems that exist and that need to be fixed and that can only be fixed with race thinking. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so listeners just rewind back to the beginning of the episode when Chuck asked me to <laughs> note that he was not post-racial. <laughs> But it's nice to think about, isn't it? Oh, that's just so lovely. <laughs> so, so lovely. Just like, wow, yeah, we all got the vaccine and oh, and there's look at the look who came over for dinner. Right. Look who came <laughs> over for dinner. And oh, and Beyonce's next album is online dancing. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> right. Okay, Chuck, so 
I am going to ask you, like I ask all of my guests, three questions, which we end every episode with. And I'm going to ask them to you all in a row. You can answer them all in a row. So the first question is, what do you think the lesson or the takeaway of Men Against Fire is? The second question is, what worries or scares or concerns you the most about this world that we see represented in Men Against Fire? And then the third question is, on a scale of one to 10, with one being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a kind of utopia, where does the world of Men Against Fire fall? Okay, so I, I think that the, there's a lesson here about tech as a tool that we use to do nefarious stuff. Again, the concentric area between technology and domination. The, there's an exploration here and that exploration and the, le- and the lesson is, right, you know, if we're not careful and parenthetically, we have not been careful, <laughs> right? Tech can be used in some really sort of dastardly ways. I mean, there's a bunch of lessons here, right? But I think that's the lesson that really kind of hits home for me. The concerns or worries about this episode, I love the fact that the creator says, look, this isn't about the distant future. This is about the right now. But this is a genre that lends itself. This is always a double-edged genre, right? It lends itself to social commentary, but that social commentary is masked as futuristic thinking. Rod Serling showed us this with the Twilight Zone, right? You can talk about race relations, but if you make it two warring aliens, then you can have the conversations. But, you know, a portion of your audience will get what you're doing or with the Star Trek episode, you know, same thing. A portion of your audience will get what you're doing, but a portion of your audience is like, oh, aliens fighting. They're just going to completely miss the point. So concerns, worries, you know, the the ever-present concern is that we consign these entrenched differences enhanced by technology. We consign that dynamic to the future and not think about how this is playing out with us for us like right now. The kerfuffles over facial recognition technology, for instance, right? You know, Ruha Benjamin's work about what she calls the new gym code, I think, comes Mm -hmm. to mind. So there's lots of concerns here, right? And so again, this phrase, the dystopian throwback. And this is the historian speaking, you know, watching this episode, I, I was like, wow, this is brilliant. And this makes me think of 1890s, right? This makes me think of 1903. This makes me think of the 1920s. This makes me think of the 1970s. This makes me think of, the, of, of 2021. And then the scale. So this is pretty awful, particularly if you've been termed a roach, right? You know, if you're not a roach, I I imagine, and again, this gets back to the architecture of domination. I mean, over in the States, you know, we might be living our best lives, right? But from what we have seen of this episode and what we've seen of the technology and the ways in which the technology is being used to literally engage in ethnic cleansing slash genocide, I'm going to go with three. Yeah. It's not quite, you know, I, we've seen other sorts of hellscapes in the show. This is pretty, pretty awful. So, yeah. So I'm going to go in the two to three range of where I would put it. Chuck, I'm so glad that you had this conversation with me and I am not going to apologize for pushing you in super uncomfortable directions and parts of this <laughs> conversation. For you, the world. For you, the world. <laughs> it was but- fun. But seriously, thank you so much. And after this Black Mirror series is over, I am planning on following this up with my own podcast. And so I hope that you will come back and uh, talk with me again. You say the word, I'll come running. (laughs) All right. Love you, man. Love you too, baby. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple 
Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts. 